if it's this visually amazing, Mm -hmm. stimulating, astounding, whatever, and draws me in this much, it's enough for a whole lifetime's career. So that's a meaty problem. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you can choose a meaty problem young and and really milk it, that's what I feel I, I'm still doing because I I keep finding other uses for this thing. Welcome to the well. I am Brandon Edgens. And I'm Anson Mount. And our guest today is artist and inventor Ward Fleming. You don't know his name, but I guarantee you've either seen or used one of his inventions. Some of you probably even own one. The pin screen. Mm-hmm. The pin screen being this really popular toy for the past 35 years. We, we estimate it sold 20 million copies worldwide. The thing is, a lot of people don't even know what the term, the name pen screen, refers to. And a shorthand that you found was to think of the sharper image. Yeah, I think everybody in our generation, when you say those two words together, sharper image, that chain store that used to exist in every mall, and it sold nothing but novelty, high-end novelty things. Black lights. Black lights. Plasma balls. Plasma ball and the pen screen. And I remember my first encounter with pen screen literally like it was yesterday. I, I, my mom said, Hey, put your hand here. And this thing with nails in it made this perfect indentation of my hand. And it kind of blew my mind in a small way. And then she put her face into it and it was perfect. And I don't know why I have such clear memory of that, but I think a lot of people do. Yeah, it's a strange sort of toy, right? It has no obvious play function the way most toys have. It's more like a tool, which gives the user a new way of seeing things. It's a copying tool. My human hand is analog, and I put it into the pin screen. It's it's digitized. Mm-hmm. Sampled. Sampled, yeah. right. Three-dimensionally, in a way that nowadays it would require, I don't know, a 3D printer or something like that. Mm -hmm. But he came up with a way to do it in this very analog way, Mm -hmm. which is really, really cool. But who would would think of something like this? Who comes up with with that? Ward. Ward. (laughs) And I met Ward about 15 years ago when I responded to uh, Greg's list listing for a meditation cabin in the woods. So that was the first time I met him. I didn't know he was inventor of the pin screen. But after we walked down the trail with him and he showed us, you know, some cool things along the way. And we got to his meditation cabin, which he built completely by himself out in the middle of nowhere and where he had lived for a few years. Pretty short order. I went from I don't know who this guy is to saying to him, feeling comfortable enough to say directly to this guy, I want to be you when I grow up. Meeting him, he was so was not what I pictured. First of all, he's he's. Quite tall, thin, strikingly Mm good-looking middle-aged man. You get the sense with Ward that several parts of his mind are in several different places working on several different things at once. Because what he's working at is really, really hard to put your finger on and mind-blowing when you figure out what it all leads to. Yeah. Yeah. 
My father was trained as an architect. My mother studied couture and was a clothing designer. And father's father was a painter. And my mother's father was also a painter. Being with my folks who were, you know, always tinkering and doing things, making things, drawing things. The environment they were creating was like really juicy for me. I didn't have anything to rebel against. <laughs> I was going to say, you don't, you don't seem like the type. <laughs> well, but given the circumstance, I didn't have to. I remember being crestfallen when I was young. And my family used to say, call me a diddler, because I would touch things over and over again, or I would drop things over and over again, and just study them, study the way they fell, or, or the way they felt. Just like they looked at me and they thought, I think what they thought was, he's just doing something that's not very productive. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Can't a seven-year-old just be a diddler? Mm -hmm. That was my feeling, was like, okay, on the one hand, I know you're being negative in your calling me that, but on the other hand, I really dig what I'm doing, so I don't really care. <laughs> so, even at, so even at the age seven, you were like, come on, I'm seven. <laughs> Or, or I felt like, like just, you know, they thought that I was Wasting misusing time. my time. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, but you knew you weren't. Yeah, and, I, and, and that's what I mean by, like, why would I be fascinated by this in retrospect? It took me six years mm -hmm. of remembering this to then go, okay, well, now I have enough drive as 19-year-old to, to make the thing. And what is this, this object that changed the course of his life? An object so mundane, I guarantee you, the rest of us wouldn't have even noticed it. I figure I was about 14 when I saw this, or remember this Christmas card my mother got, our family got from an architect. A completely secular Christmas card, except for the fact that it had green and red paper backing up these concentric perforated rings. Imagine a Christmas card consisting of two sheets of paper. The top sheet has small holes punched into it, forming a pattern, and the holes have been punched in such a way that they create braille-like bumps with a hole through the middle, through which you can see the contrasting color sheet of paper underneath. I kept that in my memory bank for years, and when I was a freshman in college, I was having a show in the in the art gallery at my school, the San Francisco Art Institute, and I was figuring how would I make a, an interesting invitation to my show, and I thought back on that card and backwards engineered it and came up, instead of with the concentric perforated rings, I gridded the whole thing out uh, with quarter-inch graph paper glued to a piece of plywood, and on every intersection I drilled a hole and in every hole, I filled a nail according to a pattern. And then I used that to perforate paper. And that perforated paper was what 
I used as my invitation. That got the ball rolling. That got the ball rolling. In, in one sense, it solved a, a, an immediate problem of making an invitation. But then I got interested in the mechanism itself. And I started using it to imprint things. Think of a bed of nails crossed with a printing press. It was nails. They were rough. The resolution was poor, 25, 24 per square inch. He could remove and add nails according to a predetermined pattern. Primary shapes, circles and squares, and circles within squares. And then punch slash print these patterns onto a piece of paper. At one point, I was resetting a pattern in it, and I had all the nails pulled out. And I was having a party. We were drinking and carrying on, and a friend of mine took the pile of nails and started inserting it in the perforated plate. And he inserted enough pins in a field that he then came up to me and stroked his hand under it. And all the pins, all the nails were pendulum. Picture this in your head. A bed of nails with the points aimed at the floor, sitting in holes in a thin sheet of plywood. The nails are smaller than the holes, so they sit loosely suspended in the air by the nail head. On the top side of the thin plywood, you would see only hundreds of very closely spaced nail heads. So, when you push up on the nails, the heads rise up and off the sheet. But, if you stroke the pointy ends, you set the nail heads rocking back and forth on top of the sheet. And it was a beautiful, fluid motion. So that launched me away from making this into a profiling device and and got me for eight or ten years just working with these big fields as pendular fields. It's important to remember this journey started with Ward creating a tool to solve a problem, how to make a patterned paper puncher. And he has scarcely solved this problem and just begun to enjoy the fruits of his labor when he turns his attention back to the tool and makes another innovation by replacing the thicker plywood sheet with a thin metal plate. This allows the nails more freedom to swing, and he also starts making the fields much bigger. The first piece I made was for the Exploratorium in San Francisco in the late 70s, 78, I think I started working there. I had to come up with ways of setting 250,000 pins in a plate at a resolution of 97 per square inch. On the floor of the museum, the hands-on science museum, the exploratorium, the public would come up and they'd push up on the pins and have impressions of their hands in in low profile, or they'd sweep their hands. If you swept swept your hand across the whole four, four foot width of the piece, once you ended, your hand was still visible because the pins, the pins had not come to rest. So you had these broad strokes. If you looked at the bottom of the field, it was like looking at a field of wheat inverted. So when you see a wheat field in the wind, and you see that they're a pendulum too, and as the disturbance goes through the field, you see this, this grand, broad effect. I was really happy with these pendular fields 
because I could do all kinds of things with them. Uh, it, it, so it was a rich vein for me, and I kept at it for about 10 years before I realized, okay, my grants are running out and my um, patronage is running out, so how am I going to make my rent? And I figured, okay, I'll take this pendular field and I'll cut it up into a commodifiable, mm -hmm. reproducible product. Right. So I, 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 I chose four by five inch section of it. And that's what this, this is. Okay. So that piece. I made those and then I, I tried to... Just no one was interested. They were, you know, they were intrigued, but no one would pay money for that. Until now, all of his pen screens had one plate and sat flat like a table, and the pins swung underneath like tiny pendulums. They were tiny pendulums. No matter what you did to them, gravity would eventually reset the field. And it was the very ephemeral nature of it that Ward liked. But then he thought about adding a second plate and standing it up vertically. Now, instead of swinging pendulums, the pins became little depth gauges, which would stay put until the screen was reset simply by tilting it backwards or forwards. By doubling up on the plates, I was able to make these little toys. And as soon as I did that, they they just, I couldn't, I couldn't make enough of them. Wow. Everyone wanted to buy them. And I was living in Manhattan at the time, I was able, as a single operator, to make 10 a day. And I would take them out to a nightclub, what at the time it was called Area, and I would sell them at the club for $150 each, cash. And so I'd walk home with my big friends with $1,500 <laughs> in my pockets, and I did that night after night. And it was really lucrative for that time in the early 80s down in where I lived in Tribeca. It was, it was a toy and successful for a number of years. And then at the Exploratorium, they hired me to build one that was robust enough for floor use. I used stainless steel pins three inches long in a field uh, two feet square. They put it right in the front of the museum and it got mobbed. It just, it became, like, it was a problem because people wouldn't go into the museum. They would stay there at the front and cluster around, and sometimes there'd be, there'd be 75 people around it, kind of clamoring all around it, looking at it, looking at people forming the impressions, looking at, and this whole, like, repartee between the activators and the audience, and... So I started getting into it and watching what people did. I came in one morning, just as the museum opened, there was no one on the floor except for a young girl and her mother watching her perform. And she was uh, deaf and using sign language. And she she signed a whole message to her mother. The mother was like so engaged and laughing and like waiting for the text to appear. And she filled it. She just kept writing. 
and filled the whole thing with with hand gestures. And I've always felt like I, okay, I made it, I made the object and I used it as I can, but it's much more interesting as a tool for masses of people to use in the way they will use it. And so I, I, I just feel like I, I can't, I don't feel ownership in it. A lot of art starts with a concept or a specific idea or emotion the artist wishes to convey. Painting, sculpture, film, in each discipline, the media is bent to the will of the artist. Ward has another approach. Why approach it with any idea in mind? Why approach any of these disciplines with anything in mind? Well, here's the question. How do you not? (laughs) Well, okay, but not, not with anything, not with an outcome in mind. Sure, but that's that seems like a trick to me. I mean, or hard, I mean, it is hard, a trick. It's a trick for me. It, well, it's, it's still a trick for you. Well, it's a trick that yields. Uh, I mean, you know, the the old saying: if if you find something, you've lost in two ways. You either find it or you don't. I think about that saying a lot. I got that years ago, and I've kind of morphed it around in my mind, and I know what he's talking about. My interpretation of it is that you miss out on what it is by deciding beforehand Mm -hmm. what it is, and then all the potential has been... Yes, that's that's the, the meat of it. You've crushed, you've, you've lost the potential of what it is in favor of what you've already decided mm-hmm. and defined it as. Where do things come from? Mm-hmm. Do things just come out of thin air? I mean, everything's invented. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about everything, you know, whether it's float glass or whether it's awnings or whether it's thimbles or pins or come on, everything, someone has to think up and the pin is something really simple and it and it seems to be one maybe the first thing that was ever manufactured en masse and it was one of the things that was made in England at the very beginning of the industrial revolution and so and it look how simple it is you know i can see what multiples of everyday objects might create so if there's anything consistent, it's like take the simplest things and, and duplicate them and array them. Here's a problem you may not have considered. How do you get hundreds of thousands of tiny pins through tens of thousands of tiny holes? You don't. If you're Ward, you attach the plate to a vibrator, tune it to the correct frequency, and the pins will jostle themselves into the holes. And here again, a pragmatic solution to a problem becomes another point of departure on Ward's journey of investigation into the math behind nature's beauty. The pins are really interesting when they're all lying down flat and not not in a plate because they, they can't go in. They're all lying on the flat. So if you've ever seen aerial photographs of logs and rivers... And they all, they organize in the stream in certain ways. The constant input 
of that water pushing them around makes for these patterns. And the pins do the same thing when they're vibrating around on the, on the surface of a perforated plate in preparation to go into the plate. So different frequencies drive them in different right ways. One thing needs to be pointed out here. The kind of work Ward does requires a tremendous degree of precision. I've used upwards of a million pins. For instance, the perforated metal plates he uses cannot be punched out with a machine because the machine eventually begins to compound error. If the machine doesn't correct itself, you're ten thousandth of an inch off. And it's very obvious in these pieces. You would never have pass-through holes. Yeah, then you have occlusion between right, sheets yes. and you can't, right? Mm-hmm. So, Ward uses the precision of a printing process to print where the holes need to be and then uses a chemical process to etch the holes away with acid. It gets applied over and over again until all the holes simultaneously bear through the plate. It is this intimacy with the process and the materials that drives Ward's creativity, not some predetermined idea or map. I never thought about this from the very beginning. It's all procedural. It's all process-oriented. You work with the material, and it tells you things. That saying, chance favors the prepared mind. you're, You're seeing things in every day that could remind you of something if you were prepared. But if you're not prepared, you won't see it. How do you stay prepared? You tease out, you, you pick a little, little tiny little niche and really go over it with a fine tooth comb. Most people couldn't do this because of what looks to me like a lot of repeating precision, you know, but for you, this is all just preparing the mind? Preparing materials. It's still that field that's unfilled. It's a potential. And it doesn't have to be decided upon and carried through in a particular way. It's just that openness with which you approach various situations that is sort of analogous to an unfilled screen. You know, a disorganized system with no input. When Ward talks about fields, he's talking about a perforated plate, he's talking about a workspace, he's talking about a mental state, and sometimes he's talking about an actual field, like an open space in the woods. A few episodes ago, we had Dr. David Haskell on, and you know, around that time after I read his book, uh, The Forest Unseen, I got really, really turned on by it, and I just felt like Ward had to read it immediately. So I I gave him a copy and I thought, well, if anyone can dig the idea of meditating upon a patch of forest, it's Ward. I gave uh, Ward a copy of the book and explained to him what it was. And I said, this guy, this guy stares at a patch of forest, you know, you know, you know, for a few hours every day, but for a year checks back in on it. And Ward is like, uh-huh, uh-huh. I did that one time. I was like, what? He said, yeah, I, I sat in the forest for 28 days and stared at a little patch of forest in a field with no human contact 
I was like, for 28 days? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I did it twice. <laughs> I think that stands out is the amount of engineering and technology and rigor that goes into preparing the field mm-hmm. for, oh, who knows what. <laughs> right? But that's the prepared mind thing that yeah, you're talking yeah. about either. Yeah. You know? the, 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 the amount of preparation that it takes to end up with something that is still just potential. Right. To get into the position where you could do something, mm-hmm. whether you do it or not. You. I think that requires a tremendous amount of patience, Ward. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, this, there's something about your personality and looking at these plates that makes you the only person <laughs> that could do this. <laughs> and the things that populate these fields can come as a surprise. In fact, that is pretty much the whole point. For instance, it turns out that when you array thousands of pins as Ward has you've created a molecular model of sorts. Think of the pen heads as particles, and the hanging needle as a kind of driver or engine for that particle. Ward's ability to sit and study patterns in nature has led him to accidentally model some natural phenomena which have caught the attention of scientists. If you get uh, a million pins all shaking with a vibrator that's, that's, that's set up to shake them, Scientifically, they're referred to as BZ reactions. Belozov-Zabotinsky reactions are these oscillating chemical reactions. When, when it's a chemical process, they take up to 36 hours. Some take years to form. But my pin screen, if you vibrate them at the right frequency, you can get them in real time right, right now. And you can, see, you can see the standing waves moving throughout the field so the pins are organizing themselves now did you know uh this bz reaction thing was that something you were aware of before or is that something that happens after you've made this the field and watch how it responds and then like how do you come to know something like that oh so because i was working at the exploratorium and i was surrounded by chemists and physicists and filmmakers and you name it we were working all together there and when when i would turn my field on in the in the shop i'd have people coming through going oh that's a bz reaction and and then and then so that then this um, researcher from UCLA came and, and started studying it. It was beyond me. I have no formal training in science. But it gets stranger. I also use millions of other things, like millions of tungsten carbide balls, 0.6 millimeter, from the points of ballpoint pens. And I use them in big arrays, 70, 80 sometimes 150,000 of these little tiny balls in aggregate form these beautiful, very regular, consistent patterns the same way pins do. They form an atomic model of something called liquid metallic hydrogen, a substance so exotic it does not even exist anywhere on Earth. To see the real thing, you would need to go to Jupiter's core. 
water molecules are fascinating. Mm-hmm. And and look at if you know a BZ reaction in a pin screen is interesting enough, but what about going at sunset mm-hmm. and looking at um, languid waves in water? That point at which the lighting's just right, the sun's setting, and you're in a boat looking towards the setting sun, but not blinded by it. And you're looking at water, which is not active to the point where it's frothing, Mm -hmm. but it's just languid. Mm -hmm. What do you see? You see an amazing quality to it. And okay, that's, that's on the molecular level. That's what, that's what water does. Mm -hmm. And so this is a crude approximation very crude so if I could get pins with heads that were sub-millimeter I could I could get a thousand per square inch and maybe I could uh, make what looked like a reflecting pool Mm -hmm. in a place where there is no water you could simulate water so in a desert you could fool people into thinking that you were looking at a pool of water the finer I can make it the more I could, you know, imitate Mother Nature. Do you have an immediate response to that? or Yeah, that's right there. That's the difference between an artist and an inventor. Hmm. The inventor makes something that is of use or marketable and then tries to quickly move on to the next thing. Whereas the artist d- continues to dig deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And there is no bottom to how small, how fine your craft, your architecture of something can go. Even something that is seemingly simple as pins in a screen. He's still working on it. He's mm-hmm. still developing it. He's going big. He's making these giant wall-sized pin screens and then now he's talking about taking it down to the minuscule to mimic something fluid out of something that is severely not fluid mm-hmm. um, yeah you, you don't you don't look at uh rigid sharp metal pins and think oh we can we can recreate water most people yeah, no most people do not think like this no i also think that ward would not be ward if you took him out of his environment namely the mountains, nature. What is this thing with artists retreating to nature? We see it throughout history on Walden Pond, the Black Mountain School, artists, writers, thinkers retreating. Or maybe it's not that. We think of it as retreating. We think of it as a a way to get away from everything else that we can focus, but there is more than that. There's a reason we go to nature it's, it's the source. It's the, it's creation. It's the source. You're going back to the source. You're going back to, um, for me, I have very, you know, this is why I built a cabin in the woods, you know, why this was, it was that important to me to be able to, 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 to go back to the source and have a place where I could be really comfortable mm-hmm. and hang out there. Because to me, a city is prefabbed. It's all been defined. It's inert. It doesn't move on its own. It dec- I mean, it sure. It, if you call decay a movement, if you call entropy a movement, and it, it, and it is, but without that input of human creativity, it's just going to keep falling apart. And I see a very vain attempt 
at forestalling death, at pretending that we've removed ourselves from this cycle, from you know the, the, the food cycle or the birth and death cycle. And of course, it's nonsense. And being in the woods, for me, and I think for Ward, and I think for the reasons, all the reasons that you specify, the reason artists go there, is things are balanced there. And there's a sense of constant creation. Things don't just fall over and quit <laughs> in the woods. <laughs> right. I mean, things die, but that's part of, but that has to happen for anything else to happen. We use this term when we go into nature, uh, recharging the battery. That's actually quite a literal thing that happens mm-hmm. because there's so many little things that are drawing on your attention and your energy when you're in the city that you don't realize it's happening. Exactly. And then when you get into the nature, slowly those, it takes, for me, it takes about 24 hours, but slowly those points of attention and focus and, and worry begin to fade and you liter your battery literally begins to recharge. And this is where I would like to end with another <laughs> little note about Ward. It's something that reflects his level of chill. Mm-hmm. So whenever I take people up into the woods, people are always worried about bears. I, I guess I see why I'm never worried about bears, but I was having this conversation with Ward and saying, you know, uh, yeah, every time I bring people up here, they're worried about bears. And Ward says, every time I've run into a bear in these woods, they're chill. <laughs> they're chill. That's true. I was like, yeah. And then he says, well, think about how you feel when you've been up here for just even a couple of days. You're super relaxed. Even after a couple of days, they live here. The Well is produced and edited by Anson Mount and myself, Brandon Edgens, with additional editing by Sharon Herr. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Additional music by EXPWY, Monk7, Greg Reinfeld, and InGlove is provided under a universal public domain license. Music by Poddington Bear is provided under a Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial license. Special thanks to Ward Fleming for sitting down with us and letting us peek under the hood. You can find out more about him and what he's up to at thewellpod.com. Check it out and give us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks and have a great week. <laughs>